Hi, hello everybody. Thanks for coming. Um, I see old friends and new faces, which is always very nice. Um, my name's Elizabeth Foy. I'm the head of St Paul's Forum here, which means it's my joy and my job to put on events like this. What could be more delicious? Um, and it's a week into, it's a week after Trinity Sunday, but, um, and Trinity doesn't really have a season unless you count ordinary, but I think it's always, uh, it's always in season, the Trinity. So today we're going to look at the Trinity. Thank you. Hooray! Already. Um, and, um, now I feel distracted. And, um, and it's, uh, it's notoriously the most difficult and troublesome doctrine. Uh, in my brief excursion through um, theological college, the term where everybody studied Trinity in Cambridge University, people looked incredibly drained towards kind of November and wet flannels on their forehead and kind of crises of faith. But um, it's, uh, I'm delighted that Ian has come to talk to us about this today because he says, um, and this has been very enriching for me, that the Trinity has to be understood with your heart as well as your head. Um, and so that's, I think, some of what he's going to talk to us about today. I'm just delighted that Ian's come. Ian Molesby is our friend and our neighbour here. He has uh, a wonderful community, uh, St Mel Mary Aldermary around the corner called Moot, and he's the priest missioner to it's a new, uh, a new religious community, which he might say something about or we'll talk to you about afterwards if you're interested. So thanks so much for coming today, Ian. The Heart of Hope. Thank you. Thank you. So yeah, thank you for coming to this talk entitled The Heart of Faith, The Trinity as the Hope of Humanity. I will be drawing on some of the content of the recent book that I'm unshamedly showing already called God Unknown, The Trinity in Contemporary Spirituality and Mission. Around about the last 15 years, I've been on my own spiritual journey trying to understand what type of God lies uh, at the heart of the Christian faith which has been about trying to get my head round the confusing and mysterious understanding of God, the Holy Trinity. In that time, I have wrestled and driven most of my friends completely bonkers as I've obsessively tried to understand. So my first confession is that I am a self-professed addict to all things Trinitarian. My spiritual journey from socialist atheist to charismatic Christian to contemplative and sacramental Christian, and now to a priest in the Church of England, and to a more reflective missioner with the MOOC community, all of this journey has given me an opportunity to struggle and to try and discern by the way of love, a God that I could never have dreamed was possible when I first started out exploring the heart of the Christian faith. To begin to appreciate the importance of the Holy Trinity, we need to ask the question, how we see God? Writings about the Trinity go right back to the many hints in the Bible. We remember that the word Trinity is not a biblical word, but God as Trinity is a biblical concept that comes as moments and hints in the Old Testament, which gathers into an articulation of the Christian Trinitarian God in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospel of John and the letters of St. Paul. It may seem an obvious thing to say, but belief and faith in God did not emerge out of the clever minds uh, of clever people Rather, they began with people having disorientating and transcendent personal encounters of God. The Hebrew and Christian scriptures are a record of the long and varied history of the experiences of people that started off as story rather than theological treaties. At the heart of the Christian mystery is the fact that God, previously unknown, chose to actively engage with human beings 
and thereby reveal something of the divine nature. This began with Abraham and Sarah, through to the judges, through to the prophets, and then into the New Testament, where people encounter Jesus, who kept on talking about Father, the Spirit, and him as the Son of Man. In the Gospel of John, you can be forgiven for thinking you're on a merry-go-round when Jesus keeps banging on about me, you, Father, Spirit, we, us, you, me, Father, Spirit, we, us, which becomes thoroughly disorientating in its Trinitarianness. From these experiences, it took some time for Christians to be able to articulate an understanding of God as three in one. It took the early church mothers and fathers around 500 years to gather together the many hints that pervade scripture and articulate the doctrine of the Trinity. The early church had to wrestle with articulating their experiences and understanding of God about how Jesus the Redeemer, God the Creator, and the Holy Spirit all related. Early church culture was oral rather than word-based, and therefore many of the early understandings of God evolved out of experience of God and exploration. We remember that the epistles were the very first New Testament written sources that emerged out of the Christian life, which helped create the environment for the creation of the creeds and the doctrine of the Trinity as one of these creeds. And so I want to make my first important point. We in the West have not really ever had a deep understanding of the Trinity because until recently, much Western theology has not been great at understanding it. In fact, in many differing church denominations in the West, teaching has not been very good at all on the Trinity. I personally have heard much tosh presented about in sermons and in teachings in churches I have attended. Some theologians, including me, blame this largely on St. Augustine, the great Western theologian, as there is much evidence that he did not understand the dynamism at the heart of the Trinity. For some, Augustine's teaching on the Trinitarian God has been the Achilles heel of Western theological thought because it defines God in two solid terms, two solid form, which loses something of the dynamism and the dynamic nature at the heart of God and the identity of God. So I do think that we in the West hold an impoverished understanding of the faith because we have inherited an impoverished understanding of the theology and mystery of the Trinity, something the churches of the East, of Alexandria and Syria have not been impoverished by. To be authentic Christians living now in the present, we need to be disciplined to learn from God and from early Christian writers, sometimes called the patristic writers, to again learn about a God that is deeply dynamic and approaches to faith that are inspiring that resonate and are relevant for today. So our story begins with a question. How do people today see God in our very British context with all the church history that has brought us to this point? What fascinates me is that in contemporary society, many do believe in God, either as the remainder of some form of Christian experience of Sunday school, Christian parents or grandparents, or of an encounter with people who consider themselves church, Christians, but have left the church. Frighteningly, we remember that 80% of people in this country have either left or have never had anything to do with the Christian faith or church. If you dig a little, there seems to be three main themes of an understanding of God. Either there is an understanding of God as some form of heavenly super being, 
somewhat an abusive parent who is angry, judgmental, and seeks to smite people, evoking guilt and fear, almost like the fear of ancient Greeks had of the pantheon of gods. Or there is a resilient, more nature spirituality, pre-Christian understanding of God as spirit, as a form of God who is mystically connected to all matter and all being in the universe. This is a much more mystical understanding of God and one that seems to be increasing in our spiritual, not religious culture. The other is still a fascination with the person of Jesus Christ. Interestingly, there has been much exploration in people who are not churched about the writing of Jesus and the idea of Jesus as liberator, with the struggle of thinking of Jesus as a man or as a form of God. One fascinating article I read in the Adbusters magazine, a Canadian magazine, is the common perception that the church has not been faithful to following the real Jesus, but more interested in perpetuating itself as an institution. For many in contemporary society, there is absolutely no awareness of how these different elements, these three very basic images of God, admittedly where the first was a slight distortion of the idea of fatherhood, may actually be the beginnings of something more multifaceted. And this hits one of our very great problems in the West. Many Christians have no idea about the reality and importance of the Trinity, and it is my belief that the Church in the West has the responsibility for causing this, both Catholic and Protestant. For some, there is an overemphasis on everything being about Jesus, who has been cauterized out of the Trinity, as either our best friend or hero, with no understanding at all of how Jesus is one person of the Trinity. Or as we have seen an emphasis of God as the Father, a faith that is more Old Testament than New Testament, again to the impoverishment of an understanding of the New Testament of how God the Father, Yahweh, relates to Jesus as God the Son and God the Holy Spirit as the Holy Trinity. So in short, we have forgotten that it is an understanding of the Trinity that makes us not some form of a Jewish cult. It is an understanding of the Trinity that makes us Christian. And it is the Trinity that defines an understanding of God and, by implication, the role and purpose of church in following in the way of the Trinity. So I want to argue that the crisis we have in the Western world regarding church and the Christian faith starts because we have dumbed down on an understanding of the Trinitarian faith and spirituality, which are now somewhat lost in contemporary culture. Because we have dumbed down on a Trinitarian faith, understanding God as Father, Son and Spirit, the deep riches and spirituality of the Holy Trinity have not just been lost to many elements of the church, but they have been lost to contemporary culture. I find myself in deep agreement with David Watson one of the pioneers of the charismatic renewal in England in the 1970s and 80s, who near his own death reflected on how the Reformation made the faith far too rational and dumbed down on Trinitarianism and in particularly the place of the Holy Spirit. I want to argue that it was charismaticism that has helped some elements of the church to rediscover a deep Trinitarianism at the heart of faith where many Western Christians, particularly the more Protestant, have not yet been able to to communicate this concept 500 years later to our contemporary culture. We have had a God that is far too dependent on certainty and rational dogma than on encounter and dynamic contemplative prayer. And this needs to change 
if the church is to articulate a healthy understanding of the faith in the Western world today. We need to be careful, then, in how we name God, as this impoverishes an understanding of a Trinitarian Christian God. God is not our best friend. That top image comes from the film Dogma, where they try to create an icon of God to be your best mate. Completely unbearable. In my book, I tell the story of a friend who was told this when he became a Christian, who lost his faith when life got really tough, because how could God be a friend if life is difficult? Looking at other images there, God is not a murderous father upstairs, like some former barbarous tribal elder. This is about fear and control, and loses the focus of God's love and gift of God in our lives. God is not a thing, some form of superbeing. This makes God too solid. We lose the dynamism of a God who will do what God will do, of love and justice, who will not be controlled or boxed in by human understanding. God is not a fretting and ultimately unpleasant upstairs deity, thinking of new ways of punishing us and afflicting us with pain. If you think this, can I invite you to read the New Testament, which is, for Christians, the lens through which we understand the Trinity. We start through the teaching of Jesus to understand that God as Trinity begins in love. And finally, after 500 years of the so-called Enlightenment and modernism, God is not British, white, Anglo-Saxon, and most of all, God is not modernist, meeting all the sensibilities of being too rationalist and unspiritual. Actually, the fascinating thing about the Trinity is that God doesn't fit, and that's why we struggle. Ultimately, not only does God not fit with these expectations, but also the Trinity, Jesus, and us as Christians do not fit. Being spiritual is actually part of the journey of not fitting in, the journey of faith. We just forgot about it for a long time. And also, while we're about it, God is not a hierarchy, where the Father is more important than the Son, who is more important than the Holy Spirit, as if there is an inner hierarchy of God. The more established church traditions have tried in some places to argue that this is about the need to justify the need for a church internal hierarchy, the need to justify archbishops and a pope. No, God is co-equal, is dynamic, where each person of the Godhead is in common unity, the basis of our understanding of the word community. The next slide makes the point that the Father, the Son and the Spirit are co-equal, but paradoxically at the same time that they are different. They are, as Trinity, interdependent and flow into each other, but are also distinct. So our task begins today with the realisation that there is very little residual understanding of the Holy Trinity in contemporary culture and in some elements of the Church, and that our task begins with growing to be more Trinitarian-inspired Christians who can then let go of the need to being overly rational and more balanced between prayerful experience and biblical understanding. We remember that the Trinity is a paradox, and the more scientific thinking cannot cope with paradox, and that's why much of modernity struggles with paradox and thinks it's irrelevant. One lovely story from St. Francis of Assisi is recorded where some followers asked him why he believed the doctrine of the Trinity to be true. 
Apparently he was quite shocked and replied that he knew it to be true because he experienced the Trinity of God in prayer every day. For him the Trinity was the reality and experience of grace, of the heart of the divine, rather than a conceptual framework of the mind. And so it is that we again hold on to a paradox today, that our contemporary world is pretty ignorant of Trinitarian spirituality, is increasingly rejecting more modernist expressions of church, and increasingly seeking spirituality rather than religion. And some of this searching for contemporary spirituality is that we have ended up in an incredibly uncertain and fragile world in the West. We have woken up to our peril that we are facing the potential for ecological catastrophe driven by greed and addiction to the global market and the consequences of global capitalism that is the fulfilment of a more modernist mindset where there is no spirituality, just commodities, markets, resources and international trade. Our contemporary peril is the result of our lost Christian spirituality. If we do not have an understanding of the Trinity, then we do not understand how the whole of the world, our lives and the cosmos relate to the wider understanding of the Trinity. Our world and people have been reduced to the lives of inputs into a machine that has an unmeetable desire and need. This will drive us to distraction, to destruction, unless we have a more spiritual understanding of balance and the sacredness of life and matter, which in Christian thinking ultimately meet their source in the Holy Trinity, the giver and sustainer of all life and matter. And we remember that we are in a society that feels desperately empty right now, where there is not much hope. It is my argument here that the source of real hope comes from a greater appreciation of a Trinitarian God. But before we go into that, what are some of the key biblical texts for the Trinity? And we begin in Genesis chapter 18. In Genesis 18, Abraham has a transcendent experience of the divine. The passage describes him becoming aware through a multi-sensory experience that the one God was addressing him. Quote, The Lord appeared to Abraham. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favour in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way. Now that you have come to your servant, very well, they answered, do as you say. From this point on in the story, Abraham's life is transformed as he and his family seek to be obedient to the one God. It marks the beginning of the process whereby Yahweh is transformed from being one among many pagan gods to being Abraham's Elohim, his only God, to whom he was committed. The the extremely mystical story appears to engage with a God in oneness, yet in three persons. The Lord, the one God, appeared in three persons. The story begins with the Lord appearing to Abraham and then goes on to say it was through the appearance of three men. Abraham then addresses the three figures as my Lord, appearing to recognise the figures as an authentic manifestation of God. This encounter is never explained. Christians, particularly from the Eastern Orthodox tradition, see this story as the key point of the revelation of God's Trinitarian nature. 
This famous um, icon by Andrei Rublev depicts the scene in an updated Trinitarian context of the Christian Eucharist, and more of that later. For now, this event can be seen as a, de- a biblical debut, if you like, of the Christian God one yet three. What should be noted is that God is revealed and experienced in a creative and unanticipated event, not as dry abstraction. This follows by a lot of Trinitarian moments in the Old Testament that build up in crescendo to the New Testament. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 16, and this is played throughout all the Synoptic Gospels, we encounter the three persons of the Holy Trinity as being present at John the Baptist's baptism of Jesus. Quote from Matthew. And when Jesus had been baptised, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. This is recorded in all the Gospels, and as we say in John's Gospel, there is a constant appeal to the Godhead. Further, in the epistles, there are many, many connections. For example, 2 Corinthians 13, where Paul offers a blessing in the name of the Trinity. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the community of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. It is at this point that we need to mention that our understanding of the Holy Trinity came through the insights of what has become known as the Cappadocian mothers and fathers. These were a bunch of friends and family who together helped the church think through an understanding of the implications of the Trinity. These included St. Macrina, Macrina the Younger, Basil the Great, Gregory of Nyssa, and Gregory of Nizanius. I can never say that. Nizanius. These influential Christian thinkers helped the early church councils, including the Nicene Council, and therefore the Nicene Creed, that emphasised the distinctiveness of the three persons of God. For them, the divine nature of Christ, both human and God, is equal to the nature of the Father and the Holy Spirit in all things, including being and in eternity. Rather than making God solid and certain, the Cappadocians believed it was impossible to fully understand the nature of God. There will always be mystery, and challenged those who proposed such ideas in the early councils. To quote Basil, We know the greatness of God, God's power, God's goodness, and God's providence over us, and the justice of God's judgment, but not God's very essence. We know our God from God's operations, but do not undertake to approach near God's essence. So the Cappadocians argued that God has a general or common essence, and that there are three persons, each existing as concrete individuals with their own identities. In nature and being, the three are absolutely the same, co-eternal and infinite, and utterly distinct from creation, which is finite and exists within time. But they are distinguished from each other by the characteristics of each. The Father is distinguished as the cause, the Son being by the only begotten, and the Spirit by proceeding from the Father. This formulation maintained that despite God's self-revelation, God remains somewhat mysteriously other and concealed. It further affirmed that God in God's being was not static, but something fluid, vibrant, and creative. 
Now I'm looking at you, it looks a bit like a casualty department in here at the moment. So I hear you asking, what precisely has this got to do with life? And what has this got to do with the Trinitarian God that opens up the heart of faith? And what is it about the Trinity that becomes the hope of humanity? Well, firstly, as Rublev Icons expresses, um, it reflects the Gospel of John, is that we are invited into a spiritual gift and that we are addressed as individuals. That God invites us all to join in with God. The beauty of this icon is that it welcomes us in. It is incomplete and welcomes us to join in with God. The Gospel of John then is saturated with these invitations. Jesus addresses the Creator saying, as you are in me and I am in you, let them be in us. So the heart of the Christian faith is the idea that we grow into faith and we grow into deep relationship with God the Trinity. So being Christian then is about growing up into a relationship with God. Prayer and worship are about joining in with the persons of the Trinity and mission is about catching up with what God is already doing. It is deeply hopeful. No part of the universe is abandoned by God. God is also not so much a thing, but a dynamic event. And this is the bit I really love. God is a happening rather than a thing. Just think about that for a minute, because it's quite complicated. God is an event of love, justice, inclusion in a pure form. That ultimate expression of unity and diversity or common unity is that God is a transformative experience as much as a person. God is perfect then in expression of community. And thirdly, God models a dynamic non-dualism. And that is a great hope for a church that is deeply um, dualistic. God fundamentally believes in both and. A balance that seeks mind and heart, fulfillment of the other, and relationships that sees that the other needs love just as much as we do. It breaks down the divides of the church and is the main reason why we have the new commandment to love despite difference. Additionally, God in Trinity demonstrates an integrated approach to the faith. This dynamism can be expressed as orthopraxis, as right living, orthopathy as right being, as in fulfilment and well-being, as well as right thinking in terms of orthodoxy. That's why we get that beautiful and Franciscan idea of experience leading to understanding. We in the West have been obsessed with facts and knowledge, and we have not been that great at experience. We need all three of these things, beginning with orthopathy, to model the way of Jesus Christ that leads us into the depth of the Christian faith, which fundamentally starts with being healthy. And that has much to say to a culture that is increasingly unwell, addicted, and has mental health problems. With this thinking then, Christianity is about fundamentally about becoming profoundly deeper human beings as we learn to love God, love ourselves, and love others. And the key concept we experience as modelled in the Holy Trinity in this spiritual dynamism is the Greek Christian concept of perichoresis. This is a paradoxical word again, and key truth to the nature of God strongly understood in the East and completely not understood until relatively recently in the Western Church. Peri is a word meaning about difference, of separate parts, where charesis is about being part of something greater, 
Here we start to appreciate how God is one being and substance, but having yet three different persons. This then is a dynamic God which expresses identity in something wonderfully fluid and mysterious, yet wonderfully life-affirming. In the Greek tradition, this idea of perichoresis is expressed in the idea of a dance. I just want to go back one slide. Something that we often miss in this icon is the position of the feet. The feet are in a position of movement. They're in a position of anticipation of movement. And so this goes very deeply within the Greek Orthodox tradition about how perichoresis begins with the movement of the feet. Going back to uh, Picasso's depiction here of the three dancers, I found this incredibly deeply moving. It isn't directly um, being constructed around the Trinity, but it's amazing how many people have interpreted it as so. It is dynamic, hence that idea again of God as an event of grace. It expresses love of life and existence. It is playful and it is passionate. It expresses this deep truth of God that are hard to express in words. And I do not think I'm the only one who has seen the spiritual significance of Picasso's depiction having something deep to say about the Trinity. I came across this at the Tate Britain, where Francis Bacon is inspired by Picasso, starts to explore the concept of the Trinity and perichoresis at the crucifixion. If God is so deeply interdependent, then this image for me expresses the paradox of Jesus of the Trinity dying in a way that is truer than an image of a lonely man dying on a single cross. This image then deeply understands the rootedness, even in Christ, of common unity. That image, as I have argued, has diminished our theology. And I hope this image deeply challenges us in how we see the place of the Trinity, even at the mystery and paradox of the crucifixion. And this image, again by Francis Bacon, exploring the theme of integration and participation of the Holy Trinity, is also at the crucifixion. These images are reminding us that Jesus' entire ministry was in participation with the Trinity, who, as co-equal persons, must have also suffered. In the East, they do not talk of the Spirit of Jesus, as we talk about often, but of Jesus of the Spirit, where they do not see Jesus at all as a lone figure, because of the the reliance of Christ's identity and mission out of the relationship particularly with the Spirit and of the Trinity. We remember that Christ was born of the Spirit, baptised in the Spirit, his ministry of healing was in the power of the Spirit, and and he was raised and was raised at the resurrection in the power of the Spirit. This deeply then shows God's interdependence, reflecting the perichoresis and interdependency of God. This dynamism reminds us of the need to shift then from an obsession with thinking and conceptual understandings to the heart of experience, of encounter with God. Faith and knowing God begins with prayerful encounter and experience of God that takes us to understanding. Now I hope you are beginning to sense that there is also a connection about how God models community in perichoresis and something about how we should live as followers of the Christian God and the importance of how we live in community with others, where interdependence, love, justice and mercy are expressed in our interdependency with each other and the planet. 
And how is this expressing itself in contemporary spirituality outside of the church? Well, I've been fascinated by the many, many groups that now engage with 12-step. These are groups of people who come together to try and cope with various addictions, whether it be food, sex, drug, or a multitude of dependencies. And in these groups, people express their profound humanity. They are places where people can talk openly with their struggles, pains, joys, and hopes, where people can embrace as people, and where in the first three steps, people seek to come to terms that they cannot save themselves, and that our culture's view of interdependence is an idol, it is not real. Secondly, they believe in a benevolent higher power, and thirdly, that to grow, you need to get beyond the ego and learn to follow this higher power into life, which involves humility and submission. This expression of humanity, then, for me, deeply resonates with this more perichoretic understanding of what applied to God, but also to human community, as a visible expression of the invisible kingdom of God. And surely there needs to be a reconnect with what this is and with what this is. The problem is that church often doesn't feel that deep, where people don't really have permission to be real, and doesn't have this profound spirituality about it, let alone being a loving and welcoming and hospitable place. And so it is that we come full circle to what church is supposed to be about, informed by Trinitarian faith. And the most common word for church in the New Testament is the Greek word ecclesia, which is a deliberate and provocative word. Ecclesias were the name of the town councils in the Greek-speaking ports of the Roman Empire around the Mediterranean Sea. And guess who are in charge of these town councils? Yes, you guess it, rich men. So the church turned the concept completely upside down. And who is in these new Christian ecclesias? Slaves, women, centurions, children, and all those with no voice or inclusion in the hierarchical Roman elite. Visible expressions of the invisible kingdom of God, who challenged the concept that might was not right and that love was key. So that the emperor was not God, which was seen as treason, which is why the early church was persecuted and why this strong sense of common unity was crucial. Well, surely it's because these ecclesias understood in a primitive form the call for community to be interdependent, that the words in the Gospel of John, which talked about God, have direct relevance for us, as God is modelled in perichoresis, so the church, in obedient into following the way of Christ, is also called into a perichoretic life. So what then are the implications then of a Trinitarian faith based on a Trinitarian God for us being Christian? Well, firstly, is the idea that the Christian life is an event of grace rather than being a thing. As Christians, we're less of a thing and more an event of encounter with God. That being Christian then is about trying to catch up and discern with what God is doing. It also makes the enormous important point that prayer is crucial and not an optional extra. That actual mystical encounter and transrational knowing, what do I mean by transrationalism? Well, that's the idea that we need to get away from with the obsession of our heads to our heart. The Western world is obsessed with thinking and finds that embodied thing of the heart very difficult. And finally, the Christian faith is not about becoming institutionalized, 
but more of a disposition of openness and optimism and, dare I say it, hope. And discipleship, then, is about opening up the mysteries of walking ever deeper into the way of God. Not that we become God, but that we become so mystically connected to God that our lives are fulfilled. That as God is less of a thing and more an event of transformation, so the church and us as individual followers of Jesus Christ are called to be less about being institutional and far more about being, uh, being healthy uh, individuals where life is about community and interdependence. So that then something dynamic of God and the love of God is manifest not only as us as individuals, but us as community, as ecclesia, as church. So love, justice, inclusion are less about being socialist and become a theological prerogative drawing on the Trinitarian nature of God. That as God models perfect justice, inclusion and love, so we the church are called to live that way. And that we need to be led, because community is not easy. I'm very aware of that, that actually this is a very romantic view, but the practicality of living this out is an imperative. And part of that imperative then is about prayer and meditation, enabling us to be the best of who we are to engage in this way. Dare I say it, we need to recover becoming Christian mystics in a world that is incredibly interested in spirituality so that we can breathe new life into what church is supposed to be all about, inspired by a trinity of God of three persons in one. And in this, I hope that we will be liberated. And that's a very important idea, I think, at the moment, that actually the dynamism of God in all the pressure of the world today liberates us to be free liberates us to be deeper human beings with this idea of perichoresis, the idea that we are all set free to dance, a form of church that is increasingly fluid, dynamic and loving. That is what Christian spirituality is about. Driven by a deep love, the love of the Trinitarian God. Thank you. So, um, I'm going to hog the first question, shamelessly, but uh, after that, we're going to come and ask questions about that. I'm feeling slightly boggled, and, um, and also slightly in the head, mysteriously. I suppose that you have to do that. The thing that um, I want to ask is, um, first of all, what on earth would it mean to experience the Trinity in prayer? I have to say, unlike St. Francis, I do not every day experience the Trinity in prayer. Can you say something about prayer and mysticism and the thing about becoming mystics? How do we do that? <laughs> You've got a couple of minutes because then we're going to go to questions from the floor. <laughs> well, for me, that's a recovery of very ancient prayer practices. I mean, there's a lot of Ignatian meditation that draws on Trinitarianism, and they're one of the approaches that. I was just going to say, can you hear? Can, can you hear at the back? All right, great. Sorry, interrupt you. Sorry. Completely Ignatian. lost. Ignatian. <laughs> um, so, some of those prayer practices, the one that I think I found the most useful, is where you prayerfully place yourself within a gospel text. And I think the Gospel of John, particularly, is a very useful way with this, an approach called Lecto Divina, which then 
um, is about trying to reflect with the heart the experience of a particular passage and allow that then to speak to the depth of your being. But the answer of it is, is, and it's not easy, I think that's the point. I think we in the West are so now rationalist that we almost have to let go of something of that. So time. It's tough. It takes time. So we're talking about authentic approaches to Christian meditation. We're talking about the need for a a regular prayer life um, that plays with very ancient traditions. And there is no one right way of doing that. So it's messy. Yes, it's messy. And if we were going to start, I mean, if I'm starting from nowhere, um, how would I get some guidance on that? Well, there's a lot. The London Centre for Spirituality does a lot. Um, Also the World WCCM. A, that um, I'm trying to remember what it is. Okay. Wild community of Christians, Meditation. meditators, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, so the John Main approach isn't specifically Trinitarian, but I think there is a book that he's written with daily quotes okay. that tries to help unpack some of the Trinity in the context of meditation. Okay. Um, so yes, there's, there's lots of different ways. I have brought a book, actually, which I found fascinating, where um, some people coming out of more charismatic Anglican traditions uh, are very aware that some of their church traditions are very impoverished of the Trinity and they are looking at how do they then get back into expressing that within their spiritual life. So that's good too. So it's across the tradition, I think there's an awareness that Trinitarianism is a vital thing that we need to re-engage with. So, anybody got a question? Anybody not perfectly understanding the Trinity at this moment? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Lady there. <laughs> Great question, thank you. Well, the, let's go back. I, I am going to answer the question. I just want to go back one step, which I didn't say. The importance of the language of God is it's metaphorical. Yeah, so metaphors are about trying to name God out of experience. I mean, the, the theologian Brueggemann did a lot of work talking about how did the, 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 the Hebrew people gain a language for God out of experience. So I think what we're talking about then is that the persons of God has evolved, the names have evolved out of experience of the Christian God. Now, um, so that's taking again the many hints of the words that are used in the Hebrew scriptures where the words spirit and ghost are used quite often. Um, And I think they're interchangeable. Quite a lot of modern theologians are using the word sustainer. You know, because there's that beautiful expression of of ruach, for the spirit which is the idea of breath and I love that image because it's it's basically trying to say that God is as close to us as our own breath do you see what I mean so so it's a recovery I think of a more mystical metaphorical tradition if you're interested Sally McFaig has done a lot of work on this if you're interested in her um, and her work is looking at how do we engage with a metaphor for God that then opens up the deeply Trinitarian and theological words but in contemporary society so for me, it's the place of metaphor. So ghost, spirit, um, sustainer, ruach, for me, they are all different, were imperfect words to try and name something of God out of experience, and we will never find the perfect words because that will be about boxing God in again, yes? God is always going to be mysterious, which will mean that always our words will fail because God is not a rationalist concept. God is God and will not be boxed in. Yes? I would probably say it's the person of the Trinity that is the sustainer and life giver. 
Do you know what's fascinating? I never have that problem in the conversations I have. I think there's a strong sense in contemporary society of the spirit. It's much harder to talk about God the Father and God the Son, in my experience. God the Spirit is something that I think people get, generally. Yes, 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 definitely. So the logos, um, the idea of Christ, is the, the Greek word, particularly in the Gospel of John, is a beautiful word. And I love the idea of that, again, in terms of a metaphor. If you think about it, when I speak, I reveal my nature. You know, we all use words differently. So it is saying that Jesus is something of the unique expression that, God, that Jesus reveals the identity of God through the life that he leads. That's beautiful. The other word for logos that I, I deeply love is one of the translations, is the idea of inner community. So it's the idea it reveals the nature of God through, for, through the words being expressed, but it also reveals the interconnectedness of God. And I think we shouldn't worry about it being mysterious. You know, we're always wanting to kind of hone it down, but actually, I think God works in all that uncertainty because it wriggles. I think that God the Spirit is all about unsettling us. Yes, that, that actually that around the edges of our certainties is where God is. Because it constantly relies on us to get beyond ourselves, to keep questioning and to keep exploring, which is why the emphasis then is prayer. I could bang on about this all day, but I'll shut up. And community. <laughs> and community. Yes. And community. Yes. Well, that's the other thing about Bible studies, by the way. It's The Bible was never really designed for us just to be individual people. This is, again, an enlightenment idea that it's all of us, us, as individuals, on our own, with a perfect concordance here, trying to understand this text. It is much more about the idea of church as an interpretive community. You know, as we struggle with text and life, it is about engaging with communities in the Spirit of God to try and work out what it's for now. Yeah? So it's less, again, of a rule book, but more of a guide. Yes. Well, it's two, isn't it? It's something about all prayer being about the receiving the grace of God, which is an unexpected gift, but it does require us to strive. Yeah, and I think the real problem today is that we're all consumers, so we all want the instant hit with no work. But actually, prayer is something that we have to strive about, and it isn't always about getting that nice, fuzzy feeling as if you're using your credit card. It's actually a striving where God might be absent sometimes. But I think that enriches our humanity through struggle. So I think struggle is part of it, but also where God meets us through grace in it too. Yeah? <laughs> That's probably a, yeah. I'm not the great person to talk about apologetics, all right? Because it's not my thing. Because the world that I... I work in is less concerned about uh, modernism. We now live in predominantly a post-secular society where people are trying to, because we're all formed in a consumer society, most people are trying to spiritually shop for Christianity or shop for spirituality and meaning. So in this context here, I think I'd want to approach it more artistically, which is why I've talked the way that I have today. But I do think there's a place for Apologetics, but where you start with apologetics, which begins with mystery, I don't know.
but that's a good one. I don't like the one which talks about the, the uh, you know, one is water, one is steam, one is ice, because that goes into modalism for me, that goes too far. Um, the idea that God is not really that together, yeah, but it's like three independent persons, all right? So, so the challenge is when you ever, again, there's never going to be a perfect expression of it, um, but that isn't, you know, that's not a bad one. But then what they're going to do, I'm interested what other questions they received about that. Was there more that you used? No. <laughs> That's a really hard question. I'm not sure I could answer that one coherently. Um, I can take the first two. Um, for me, the Church of England often is obsessed with words. Um, and sometimes you're right, that can then force us to be too much in our head rather than in our heart. So um, what we've been learning as a new monastic community um, in Moot from the Franciscans is that balance between said prayers and silence. And it's about getting that balance right. Um, I've been um, a curate in a very good Anglo-Catholic church, but often there was there were moments of silence, but no real tools to help people know what to do with that silence. And I think we've got a lot of work to do to start helping people have the practices. You know, it's a difficult thing. We live in a society that's obsessively running around filling everything all the time with noise and busyness, so that silence becomes a threat. So we need to help people to be able to engage with that. So I think you're right. For me, knowing God has got to be about silence as much as words. Hegel. Could you ask me specifically if there's a question within that? Because that's a huge subject in itself. <laughs> no, because I wouldn't know enough. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, mean, you can say anything. <laughs> I don't know if I would want to, I don't know. What to, well, if, what I would say, this is now touching on philosophy, um, that there's different ways of knowing and experiencing God in prayer. There's via positiva and via negativa. I think we'll start with that. So, Via positiva is very much about words and the idea that um, prayer and encounter with God is something where you directly experience God and you kind of that kind of I thou call and response idea of prayer. Well, the via negativa, which I think is where you go as you become more Christian, is that you become much more aware of the absence of God. Um, St. John of the Cross is a really good, I mean, he was a lifesaver for me in times of great pain. Uh, St. John the Cross talks about, well, how do you deal with the fact if your life is so dark, do you run away from it or do you face it? So the way of St. John of the Cross is, is about those darkness where you attentively wait for the illumination of God. Um, and that's very painful and very difficult um, and requires um, healthiness to be able to get there. So for me, something of that synthesis is starting to get into this mystery of the type of prayer that is less consumerist about needing to get a hit from God, but much more deeper in terms of the God from within, if that's a, an attempt at an answer. <laughs> so I hope that helps. Um, they flow between them. Yeah, so again, is thinking of God as dynamic. So think of the dance in that connection. That's the, so it's the idea that God isn't like three fixed circles, but the idea that it's, it's almost like a current going between them. 
if that's an answer. So when we say person, we have to be careful of androification here, that we don't immediately think of human beings, right? Because that's what we immediately think of when we think persons. I, I, would, I would use the idea of something of an entity, which is, has identity, but also interpenetrates. So it's the idea, so it's like a dance where things are much more fluid. Yeah, I think that's the nearest we can get with the language that we have. How can you tell the dancer from the dancer? How can you tell the dancer from the dancer? Yes, exactly. Good question. Yeah, so... Uh, spirit. Yes. Um, so... My opinion or the church's opinion, I mean, the, the wider church is split on this subject. Um, I would be uh, progressive in response to that, in that the church's responsibility always is to proclaim the faith afresh every generation. That's what I did at my ordinal to become an Anglican priest. And that requires me to think contextually. And for me, the great rich of the Christian tradition is the met metaphorical tradition. So I think Father, Son and Spirit is one way of describing it, but actually the church is already, I mean the liturgical mission is also talking about this in terms of different metaphors for God. But the danger there you see is that we then suddenly write off fatherhood as a negative. So part of this is and how do we redefine our positive understanding of that kind of parent-child relationship and fatherhood being a really important one, but how do we be really careful that we don't play into patriarchy and patriarchal negative um, things. So. There's a challenge here, isn't it? And there's a continuum. I'm most definitely more at the progressive end, and I think there is no one right answer. Because we've always got to say that, that even the doctrine of the Trinity is an imperfect expression of the truth, because no, no words can perfectly, perfectly express God, but we can get nearest to it. So the moot, if you go to the moot community, in its liturgies, it plays for this metaphorical tradition a lot. And it will use creator, redeemer, companion, sustainer, whatever the spirit, but normally creator, redeemer, and companion. So it gets away from some of these uh, words that become anachronistic. But many would disagree with me, but that's, that's where I am. Um, I mean, I remember, I remember somebody telling me, and I, I've always hoped this is true, so I've never wanted to ask, um, that in Aramaic, the language that Jesus spoke, the spirit is referred to as she. And I'd, for me, it was a surprisingly emotional moment for me to know that yes. one could refer to any person in the Trinity, any name for God as a yes. woman. So I, I, I personally value greatly playing with those metaphors and, and ungendering them, if I can say something so ugly. Um, I'm going to take one more and then we are going to close. Ian's going to sell his book, he's going to hang about for a bit. And uh, we've got books for sale. Amanda's come with a pile of books I can see at the back. Um, so one more question. I'm going to privilege anybody who hasn't asked anything before. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, wow. <laughs> Two immediate thoughts and responses. One is, with the Trinity, we're not talking about unity and conformity, which is really important. It's unity and diversity. Yeah, so it's a really crucial thing. And that's why I'm very happy about when we talk about a mixed economy of church, for example, where the sense of different flavours of church making that oneness, one holy Catholic and apostolic church, it connects with the Trinitarian thought. 
One word of caution around, around when we engage with contextualization is between the difference between panentheism, here we go now, difficult words, mm. but I'm going to say it, between panentheism and pantheism. All right? uh, and again, this is something that the Greek Orthodox Church has really struggled down that line. So when we, say, when we use words that are panentheist, we are saying um, that there is a mystical connection between God and all created matter. So it's the kind of cosmic understanding of God, but God is not that matter. Yeah, so it's an important distinction. So when, I th I think this is, so when we're engaging with mystical language of particular traditions, there's a really careful judgment between whether a word is panth pantheistic um, or pantheism. Yeah. So the tree is not God, um, but the tree is mystically collected to God. Do you see what I mean? So some, uh, when you've seen some of the missionaries have gone abroad to various countries, they've maybe gone a little bit too far with pantheism and have not had that subtlety of panentheism. So it is a minefield, which is why I think it needs to be done. That's why we need a strong understanding about the Trinity when we start playing in the world. You see what I mean? I, I am a really strong believer that if we dumb down on the theological constructs, we will make big mistakes as we attempt to articulate it in context, which is why I've struggled for a very long time <laughs> trying to work out what I think. Yeah. Which is why Trinity Sunday is really important. Right? And I'm very glad that it's a pain in the neck for many people <laughs> because it reminds us the importance of wrestling with things that are difficult to articulate. It's very important. Absolutely. And thank you for doing just that. Thank you, Ian. Thank you. Thank you.